I want to have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15 for our time of study and the word this morning. Uh, John 15, uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John. And as we continue in our study through uh, this gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, And my initial goal was to cover verses 1 through 11, but halfway through the week, that dropped down to 1 through 7, and then that dropped down to 1 through 6, and then 1 through 5. And this morning, we're going to do the best that we can to just cover verses 1 through 4. And the title of the message is The True Vine and His Branches. The True Vine and His Branches. If it's okay uh, with you, I'd like to begin my sermon this morning with a country song. Does anyone approve? Okay, that's enough. Um, And I would sing this song to you, but I honestly don't know the tune. The song is from Isaiah 5. Now, those of you that said no feel really bad, don't you? Uh, From Isaiah 5, where we read these words beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. How's that for song lyrics? The song continues in verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. And it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. This song in Isaiah 5 is just one passage in the Old Testament that represents Israel, God's people, as a vine. There are several other passages that we find in the Old Testament that do that, and virtually all of them talk about how Israel failed to be the vine that God wanted her to be. But in our passage today, in John chapter 15 and verse 1, Jesus stands before his disciples and all of us and claims to be the true vine that Israel had failed to be. And we're going to explore what all he means by that in the coming moments. But first, I should tell you right away that John chapter 
15 verses 1 through 17 is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. In fact, I can't think of another passage of scripture that I have quoted to myself more often than I have these verses in John 15. There have literally been hundreds of occasions in which I have quoted these verses aloud, thereby allowing Jesus to speak these words to me and over me. I cannot begin to tell you how much this passage means to me personally. At the same time, I must confess to you that I have often felt frustrated by the sense that I don't fully grasp these words that Jesus is speaking in this passage. And sometimes I have been saddened to observe how little I think I really believe what he's saying in these verses. In fact, a little over a year ago, I, I read this passage with my wife every single day for a couple months. And I told her, we're going to read these verses every day until I believe them like I should. That was about 14 months ago. And here I am today still seeking to understand and comprehend the fullness of what it is that Jesus is teaching in these verses, which makes me glad that we have arrived at these verses in our study through the Gospel of John. In terms of how this passage fits into the flow of John's Gospel, uh, let's remember that Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, the night before his death when he will be departing from them. And our passage today represents a fusion of sorts of the two prior passages that we've looked at over the last couple weeks. In John chapter 14, verses 10 through 17, Jesus taught his disciples about the days of greater ministry that lie ahead of them after his departure from them into heaven and after the coming of the Holy Spirit to them. And then in John 14, verses 18 through 31, Jesus spoke about the greater intimacy with him that will be theirs to enjoy when the Father sends the Spirit to them. Our passage today, or in our passage today, Jesus explains. He brings these two ideas of ministry and intimacy together, and he explains to his disciples how this intimacy with him and their ministry to others are connected to one another. And Jesus' disciples desperately need to hear the words that Jesus is going to be speaking to them in our passage today. And I believe we need to hear what Jesus is teaching also. One of the easiest things to do in the Christian life is to get so caught up in our daily routine that we begin to sacrifice our relationship with Jesus in our quest to get things done. We wake up and immediately start thinking about all of the things that we need to accomplish and we jump out of bed and just start doing without relating to Jesus as we should. How many of you struggle with that? 
Or we get so caught up in ministry to others that we start thinking of ourselves only as ministers for Christ. And we stop thinking about ourselves as needy children who desperately need Jesus just as much as the people we minister to need him. Charles Spurgeon calls this behavior the sin of ministerialism. And he said, and I quote, I hate ministerialism, yet I often find it creeping upon me. If this sin creeps up on you, then you need to hear what Jesus says in John 15. Then there are others in the church whose lives are devoid of the fruit of the Spirit and of genuine good works inspired by the gospel, yet they claim to be saved and have a relationship with Jesus, yet they're clearly not abiding in Christ. Instead, they're abiding in other things and allowing other things to have a place in their life that rightfully should only belong to Jesus. And if this is you, then you need to hear what Jesus says in John 15. Then there are those in the church whose lives are rich in genuine good works in Jesus' name, yet they find themselves experiencing the pain of trials, and they wonder what God is up to in those trials. If this describes you, then you need to hear what Jesus says in John 15. Then there are those who... I believe love Jesus, but they don't relate too closely to Jesus because they don't feel worthy of such closeness. So they're content to just serve Christ from a distance. Years ago, I was meeting with a brother in our church who seemed to be growing cold spiritually And so I asked him one day, are you walking in intimacy with Jesus? And his answer sticks with me to this day. He said, oh, Milton, you have no idea the things I did before I was saved. That was his answer. This dear brother had been a Christian for nine years and was at the time a premier servant in the church, yet he was not walking closely with Jesus because he didn't feel worthy of that privilege. He didn't think that Jesus would want such closeness with someone who had done the kinds of things that he had done. And if you ever feel or think this way, then you need to hear what Jesus says in John 15. Wherever you may be in the spectrum of things that I've been describing just in the last few moments, I'm confident that the words that Jesus speaks in this passage can meet you in that moment and bless you. The way we're going to break down our study of this passage, if you have the hard copy of the notes with you, is we're going to observe five declarations that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Five declarations he makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. And the first declaration is this. Let's word it this way. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I'm really proud of the way I worded this point. And I'll show you guys where I got it. If you look closely, I got it from verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And we should not skim over this declaration by Jesus. In the first place, this is actually the last of the I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. Up to this point, Jesus has told us that he is the bread of life. He is the door, the good shepherd, the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And now here he says, I am the true vine. As I mentioned earlier, there are a handful of times in the Old Testament where Israel is spoken about as being God's vine. And in virtually every one of those passages, Israel is being told that she has failed to live up to her calling as God's vine. She's not been a true one. That's the point. Yet the religious leaders of Israel like thinking of themselves as the vine of Jehovah that a person must be attached to or grafted into in order to be saved. If you came up to the religious leaders of Jesus' day and said, what must I do to be saved or to be right with God? They would say, become a part of Israel. Get grafted into the vine of Jehovah, which is Israel, and you will be saved. Yet here stands Jesus right now saying to his disciples, I am the true vine. And calling himself the true vine, Jesus is saying, I am the faithful vine. I am the true vine that Israel has failed to be. And he is promising that he alone can provide what it was that Israel was supposed to provide, but did not. He is the one through whom the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the one who will be a light to the nations. He is the one who has produced the fruit that God the Father truly wanted. And he is the one who can supply the sap of eternal life to people who are attached to him, providing that in a way that Israel never could. In claiming to be the true vine, Jesus is also pointing us to the existence of counterfeit vines. And he's telling us that in a world of counterfeit vines that would commend themselves to you, he's the true one. Even in our world today, there are many vines out there that people are attracted to, they're drawn to, and they look at and think, if I could just be a part of that and draw the sap of life from that, I would be happy and satisfied. And then they pursue that thing and maybe even obtain it only to realize that it's not the source of life and satisfaction that they thought that it would be. Matthew Perry 
has been in the news a lot this past week given his tragic death. I believe it was last Saturday before he landed his role on the Friends television series, Alcohol Was His Vine, though he realized that it was destroying him. But upon reading an article one day, he thought he had identified a savior that would deliver him from alcohol, and that savior was fame. So according to his own telling, he prayed to God, and he said to God, and I quote, this is him communicating this, please God, make me famous. You can do anything you want to me, just make me famous. And he admits that that's what he prayed, thinking that fame would solve his problems. Three weeks later, he landed a role in the television series, Friends, which gave him all the fame that he ever wanted. Yet he found months later that this fame could not even begin to touch the ache within his soul. His bouts with substance abuse grew worse to the point where he was not only drinking every day heavily, but also taking 55 Vicodin tablets, 55 Vicodin tablets every day. Speaking of that time in his life, he said, and I quote, alcoholism did not care that I was on friends. Alcoholism wants you alone. It wants you sick. And then it wants to kill you. And it almost did. Maybe your vine isn't fame or even substance abuse. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's exercise or professional success. Or maybe it's money or entertainment or some human relationship. Or maybe it's the approval of others. Maybe your vine is you. Whatever your vine is, you need to hear Jesus say to you this morning, I am the true vine. And in saying what he says here, Jesus is making a claim about what he can be to you if you would simply abide in him and allow him to abide in you. Looking again at verse 1, you will notice that Jesus doesn't merely say that he is the true vine, but he also says, look at the verse, and my father is the vine dresser. In other words, he's the farmer, the gardener. His father is the gardener who tends to the vine to make it as fruitful as it can be. And this brings us to the second declaration that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Number two, the father takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit. The father takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Observe what Jesus says in verse two. And I want you to notice how the father is the actor in the two statements that he makes in this verse. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he, the father, prunes it so that it may bear 
more fruit. Now, to appreciate what Jesus is saying here in the first part of this verse, we need to remember that Judas has gone out from Jesus and from the other 11 disciples just in the last hour or so to show his true colors and betray Jesus. The disciples will be seeing Judas within an hour or two in the garden, betraying Jesus with a kiss. And in the process of Judas going out from among them, Judas has now been taken away from them by God and revealed for the lost person that he had always been. And this outing of Judas that we began to see back in chapter 13, it happened not merely to bring about the event of the cross, but it also happened to weed Judas out from the other 11 disciples in order to make them as a team more fruitful than they would have otherwise been with Judas around. Now, Jesus has already taught us in John 10 that all of Christ's sheep are in the double grip of the Father and the Son and that no one can ever pluck us from their hand, which means that Judas, in doing what he has done, has not lost some salvation that he once had. He never had this salvation in the first place. In fact, write these references down. John six sixty four. according to that verse, Judas never truly believed in Jesus. And in John six seventy, Jesus said that Judas was already a devil. So with the thought of what has just happened to Judas in mind. And knowing what the disciples are about to witness in the garden as they then realize what Judas has been up to betraying Jesus, listen to what Jesus says at the beginning of verse two, where he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. There are actually two ways of understanding the verb that is translated takes away here. And I feel like we need to address this. I would imagine even in our congregation, there are people who would land on different sides of this issue. First of all, this word can be translated lift up or take up. So some writers understand Jesus to be giving a positive promise here, telling his disciples that when the father sees a branch in Christ that is not bearing fruit on his vine, he lifts up that branch so that it might be better positioned to bear fruit. And there is something to commend this interpretation. I actually find it quite appealing. Vine growers will tell you that when a branch of a vine is growing along the ground, it has a tendency to sink, to grow and sink hundreds of little roots directly from the branch into the surface of the soil where there is not sufficient moisture to produce anything except little hard, sour grapes. So a vine dresser will lift that branch up from the soil and tie it to a trellis or lay it upon a stone so that all of its nourishment will be coming from the trunk of the vine whose roots are drawing water from much deeper 
in the earth. Also, when a branch is on the ground, its leaves can get dirty, which hinders their ability to process sunlight for the benefit of the vine. So a vine grower will lift up that branch sometimes and even clean it off in order to set it up for fruitfulness. For these reasons, one can read the Greek text of verse 2 and understand Jesus to be saying, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up with the intent that it might become fruitful. This interpretation of Jesus' statement here is held by interpreters like James Montgomery Boyce, Earl Rodmacher, Bruce Wilkerson, and Chuck Swindoll, all good men. And I would say that this interpretation definitely captures something that is, in fact, a reality in the Christian life. All of that said, most interpreters understand Jesus to be saying here that God will, the Father will take away the fruitless branch from the vine altogether. The Greek word that is translated takes away here is the verb iro. And it's the same word that John the Baptist uses back in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he uses that same verb. But going with this interpretation, which would be my personal leaning, doesn't mean that if God ever catches you in some moment where you're not bearing fruit, he's going to cut you off and remove you from the vine. Doesn't mean that, but this interpretation does mean that if there is someone like a Judas who is closely affiliated with Christ and among his followers, yet who doesn't end up showing the fruit of faith and the fruit of the spirit in their life, then God will remove that branch from the vine altogether and expose it for the faithless branch that it has been all along. Such a person like Judas isn't just experiencing a dry spell. They simply don't bear genuine spiritual fruit because they are spiritually dead. To use Jesus' language here, such a person is in Christ in the sense that they are affiliated with Christ, but they're not truly attached to him as the branch of a vine would be attached to the trunk of a grapevine. And Jesus is saying here, I believe that the Father will, in his timing, expose these false converts for what they are, and he will take them away. And when they are taken away from us, we will be able to say they went out from us because they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out that it might become manifest that they were never of us in the first place. That's what, according to this interpretation, Jesus does with those that would presume to call themselves branches of Christ, but they're not bearing the fruit of salvation. But what does the Father do with the fruit-bearing branches in Christ? Well, we find that out in the third declaration that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Number three, 
Let's word it this way. The father prunes the fruit-bearing branches so that they might bear more fruit. The father prunes the fruit-bearing branches so that they might bear more fruit. In the second half of verse 2, Jesus describes what the father does with those branches that are bearing fruit. And he says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, the pruning that Jesus is talking about here is likely referring to the thinning and the trimming that a vine dresser does in the spring when the vine branches are producing too many shoots of smaller branches that are clustered too closely together. So the vine dresser will pluck many of those sprigs so that the ones that remain will be spaced properly and be set up to produce more fruit. Later in the season, the vine dresser will also remove some of the foliage, the leaves, in order to leave the clusters of grapes exposed to morning sunlight and yet protected from the sunlight toward the end of the day when it's hotter. In other words, a good vine dresser doesn't just let a branch do whatever a branch wants to do. As the commentator Leon Morris says, and I quote, left to itself, a vine will produce a good deal of unproductive growth, unquote. So the vine dresser will impose his will upon the branch and do the trimming and the cleaning that is necessary in order to ensure that the branch is as fruitful as it can possibly be. In fact, Warren Wiersbe says that the vine dresser will even cut away whole bunches of grapes so that the rest of the crop that remains will be of higher quality. This is what a vine dresser does in the real world. And Jesus' point is that God will do the equivalent of all such things in our lives in order to render us more fruitful for him. Are you ready for that? Sometimes the father may use discipline to remove sin from your life. Or perhaps he will remove things that are diluting your focus and distracting you from where he wants your focus to be. Or perhaps God might even take away from you a ministry that you loved where you felt like you were being fruitful. But he's doing that in order to set you up for greater fruitfulness in some other area where he wants your focus to be for right now. All in all, you put both of these statements of verse 2 together, and what is clear is that God the Father is very serious about the branches of his vine producing fruit. And he will do what he needs to do to ensure that that happens. In fact, I love the way the commentators Carter and Redberg express this in their commentary on this passage saying, listen to this. If you are connected to the vine, God is going to do whatever it takes to cause you to bear fruit. God will cut you and prune you and trim you and chop you. 
He is ruthlessly determined to shape you into something much better and more beautiful than you are right now. And then they say this, God's commitment to your fruit bearing is greater than your commitment to comfort. Let me read that again. God's commitment to your fruit bearing is greater than your commitment to comfort. And all God's people said, amen. We've all experienced that, haven't we? And are you okay with that? I hope that you are. And by the way, if you are wondering what the fruit is that the father is after, it's the qualities of Christian character that God wants to see in us. It's the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, along with the kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that God wants his spirit to produce in us. It's the perseverance and the proven character and the hope that God produces in us through our trials that we learn about in Romans 5. It's the fruit of repentance over our sins and the fruit of a deeper love for Christ that we have upon experiencing forgiveness of sins. It's the fruit of our lips giving praise and worship to God. It's the fruit of the good works that we do for others out of the overflow of the love that Christ has shown to us. It's the fruit of us imparting the gospel to the lost and helping our fellow Christians in their journey toward wholeness in Christ. That's just an overview of the fruit that the father wants to see in us and he will do what it takes to generate this fruit in the lives of his people. Jesus has told his disciples in the previous chapter that their greatest days of ministry lie ahead of them. And here he is assuring them that his father will see to that by pruning them whenever necessary in order to make them more fruitful in the days to come. In fact, Jesus wants his disciples to know that this is what the father's been doing over the previous three years that Jesus has been with them. And this brings us to the fourth declaration that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Number four, let's word it this way. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus declares to his disciples. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Observe what Jesus says to his disciples in verse three. You are already clean because of, or we could say through the word which I have spoken to you. And the Greek word that is translated clean here is the same word that Jesus used back in verse two that is translated pruned. Um, Jesus wants his disciples to know in making this statement in verse 3, that they need not worry, for God the Father has been about the task of pruning and cleaning them over the previous three years, getting them ready for maximum fruitfulness in the days to come. And according to what Jesus says here, God has been accomplishing this pruning 
Through what? Through or because of the word that Jesus has spoken to them. All the truths that Jesus has spoken to them about himself, all the teaching he's given to them about the Father, all the warnings and comforts he has given to them have been designed to convey to them this unified message ultimately of who Jesus is and how one can experience salvation through him. Everything he has taught them about himself as the bread of life and as the light of the world and as the door of salvation and as the way to the Father and about the need for him to be lifted up upon a cross in order to draw men to himself. All of that has been a part of his effort to bring his disciples to a solid faith in him and to make them ready for fruitful ministry in the days to come. You'll be interested to know that Jesus used this same Greek word translated clean when he was washing his disciples' feet back in chapter 13 when he told Peter and the rest of the disciples that they were already clean. But then he says in verse 10, but not all of you, referring to Judas who was not clean, which means that in saying what he's saying to his disciples here in verse three, Jesus is at least in part also assuring his disciples that they were forgiven of their sins and justified or made righteous in him in a way that Judas never was. And this salvation has come to them through Jesus and through the gospel word that Jesus has spoken to them. Which means that as we listen in on what Jesus is saying to his disciples here in verse 3, our thought ought to be, if Jesus has been pruning his disciples through the word that he has been speaking to them over the previous three years, then one of the best ways for me to allow God to prune me is to listen with an open heart to the gospel word about Jesus and to allow myself to be saved through that gospel word. And then once saved, to be a student of Jesus' words in the Bible. The best way for me to experience the daily pruning and the cleansing that I need is to immerse myself in the words of Jesus and to allow his words to be abiding in me. That should be one of your takeaways as you look at Jesus' language in verse 3. If Jesus rendered the disciples clean through the gospel word that he spoke to them over the previous three years, then we should allow Christ to do the same thing to us. We should value the words of Jesus and the pruning power of his words. There is nothing that will have more of a pruning and cleaning and refining effect upon your life as a believer than preaching the gospel word of Jesus to yourself every day and allowing his words to abide in you. And this actually brings us to the fifth and final declaration that Jesus makes, at least in our passage today to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Number five, let's word it this way. This is what he declares. Abide in me and I in you or you won't bear fruit. 
Abide in me and I in you or you won't bear fruit. Observe what he says at the beginning of verse four. Abide in me and I in you. When a person believes in Jesus, as we know, they receive eternal life from him. But this life comes to the believer in the context of a relationship with Jesus, a relational connection to Jesus. So when Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, essentially part of what he's doing is he's calling upon his disciples to stay where they are in that relationship with him and to not allow themselves to be moved away from him. He's telling his disciples to cling to him rather than clinging to other things for sustenance and for strength and for salvation. Notice the second part of what he says here. He says, abide in me and I in you. And we could paraphrase Jesus as saying, abide in me and let me abide in you. This is the language of relationship, close relationship, intense relationship. And it is also the language of rest and receiving. In his commentary on this verse, Lenski says that, and I quote, to abide in Jesus is to believe in him always. And since the chief business of faith is to receive from him, abiding means ever receiving grace for grace day by day in ever greater fullness. And I should add that if this is what it means to abide in Jesus, then we should also realize that abiding in Jesus means saying no to abiding in other things. It means refusing to let anything occupy a place in our lives that should rightfully only belong to Jesus. And when we catch ourselves doing that, that we repent of that and renounce that. And be committed to abiding in Jesus. And this would go even for those moments when Jesus behaves in ways that don't fit with our notions of the kind of Messiah that he should be. Keep in mind that all of Jesus' disciples are going to fall away from him on this very night. Partly because Jesus is going to disappoint them by allowing himself to get arrested and tried and found guilty and then crucified and allow himself to be taken away from them. They wanted a Messiah who would prevail and who would conquer and establish his kingdom with a sword. Yet Jesus is going to disappoint their messianic hopes and dreams and show himself to be a very different kind of Messiah than they were expecting and hoping for. And this disillusionment is part of why they're all going to fall away from him just within an hour or two of this very moment, which will then compound their misery even more by leaving them riddled with guilt and feeling unworthy of any kind of relationship with him. Yet Jesus so wonderfully is speaking these words to these men right now in this moment so that in their coming moments of disappointment and even guilt, 
these very words that he's speaking now will beckon them to keep on abiding in him and allowing him to abide in them. And if they stick with Jesus in this way, they will see that he's going to be a far better Messiah than they were even dreaming. And they will find themselves bearing fruit in ways that they cannot even right now begin to imagine. And we should keep abiding in Jesus also even on our most miserable days of spiritual failure, even on those occasions when Jesus contradicts our expectations and doesn't behave in the way we think he ought to behave and he's showing himself to be a different kind of Messiah than we were expecting him to be. Notice how Jesus ends in verse 4 saying, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides continuously, present tense, in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide, present tense, continuously in me. This is Jesus' way of telling his disciples that they will never bear fruit as they should unless they abide in him. In the days to come. Sure, they have spent three years with Jesus and they've learned a lot. They've been pruned a lot. But unless they go on abiding in him, they're not going to bear the kind of fruit that the father wants to see in them. And Jesus challenge for them should be a wake up call for us as well. It's easy for us to plateau in the Christian life. And to think that our experiences with Christ up to a particular point should set us up for permanent fruitfulness from that point forward. But this is not the case. And Jesus is wanting to make sure we know that this is not the case. What his disciples must do and what we ourselves must do is continuously abide in Jesus and allow him to abide in us For this is the only path to the fruitful life. Let me say it this way. We will never reach a point in the Christian life where we no longer need to abide in Jesus and allow him to abide in us in order to bear fruit for God. We're going to stop here for today uh, and look forward to picking up here next week and learning more. Let me just leave you with uh, uh, some thoughts as we close. First of all, I would just ask you, is Jesus your true vine? Is he? Can you honestly look at him today and say, you are my true vine? Are you abiding in him and allowing him to abide in you or are you abiding in other things and allowing other things to have a place in your heart and in your life that should rightfully only belong to Jesus today would be a good day to resolve afresh to abide in him and to ask him to help you to do that secondly it's obvious from our passage today that fruit bearing is very important to the father right which means that it ought to be important to us. We should want Christ to bear as much fruit through us that will redound to his glory and the glory of his Father 
And we should want to live a pruned life that is engineered to produce maximum fruit for God's glory. And so I ask you this morning, do you desire to bear fruit for him that will redound to the glory of the Father? And are you okay with the pain of God's pruning in your life so long as his pruning will lead to greater greater fruitfulness from your life for him? I hope that you are. And if you are, I have one caution for you. If you read John 15, 1 through 17 carefully, you will notice that nowhere is there an imperative that says bear fruit. Now, Jesus talks about bearing fruit a lot. He even tells us in verse 16, this is why he chose us, but we actually don't find the command to bear fruit anywhere in this passage. Instead, the command we do find is to abide in Jesus and allow him to abide in us. And Jesus promises that fruit bearing will result in the life of the person that does that. So your biggest takeaway this morning should not be to get out there and bear fruit. Your biggest takeaway should be to abide in Jesus and allow him to abide in you to relate to Jesus on his terms and allow him to relate to you on his terms. Your resolve should be to rest in the salvation that he has accomplished for you and provided for you and to let him pour his goodness into you in the context of your relationship with him. If you do that, the promise from Jesus in this passage is that you will bear fruit. He will see to that. So abide in him. Which leads me to give you this encouragement. If you're a believer in Jesus, embrace your identity as a branch. You aren't the trunk of the vine, and thank God you don't have to be. You're just a branch. And that's an identity worth embracing. Amen? As Warren Wiersbe beautifully says, And I quote, the sooner we as believers discover that we are but branches, the better we will relate to the Lord, for we will know our own weakness and confess our need for his strength. And we will abide in him, knowing that our strength comes from him. There's something humbling about being just a branch attached to Jesus But there's something freeing to that as well. For our only job is to abide in him and allow him to pour his goodness into us and to make us fruitful. If you're a believer in Jesus, when you wake up tomorrow morning, say to yourself, I'm just a branch attached to Jesus. Lord Jesus, help me to abide in you today and receive all that I need from you. You see, this call from Jesus in verse four to abide in him is actually really good news for us because it means that we don't have to go searching in a bunch of different places 
to obtain the sap that we need for life and for godliness because we already have all that we need in Jesus. It also means that we don't have to supply that sap ourselves, but simply receive it from him. So there's this remarkable, sweet simplicity here that Jesus presents to us. Just let me make this real simple for you. Just abide in me. Stay right where you are in relationship with me. Don't go anywhere else and receive the sap of life from me and you will bear fruit. This command to abide means that we don't have to work to justify ourselves or to make ourselves right with God. Jesus has already accomplished that in the lives of all of us who have believed in him. We just simply need to believe in Jesus and abide in his righteousness that he has provided for us. So if you have believed in Jesus, what you really need to do is stay right where you are with Jesus and in Jesus Keep looking to him as your savior and as your fullness provider and allow him to pour forth his goodness every day into you and make you as fruitful as God wants you to be. And I give you that call because he is the true vine and this is his job and he's the best at what he does. And there's no telling what Christ can do with the congregation of people who are abiding in him. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for just these few verses that we find at the beginning of John 15 and all that they teach us, the simplicity of what Jesus is declaring to his disciples and to us. Many of us, Lord, in this room are just doers. We would rather do than relate. And you're calling us here to relate. Just enjoy your relationship with me. Abide in me. Let me abide in you. And I will see to it that you bear much fruit. We ask, Lord, that you would make us as a church better abiders in you. And we know that abiders in you bear fruit that gives glory to your Father and to you. I pray, Lord, that if there are any in this room this morning that have never come to you, the true vine, and confessed you as their true vine, that you would just touch their hearts from what they have seen in this passage and heard in this message, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would abandon all other vines that they have been clinging to and simply believe in you, Lord Jesus, as the true and the faithful vine. 
through which they may be saved and receive the sap of life that they need. And help us as a congregation to declare this truth about you, not only to our own hearts each day, but to the world. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,